If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. In this episode, we enter the hot summer days, the joy of sweaty Sydney nights dancing, the love and desire and confusion and heartache of being a teenager. The song, Alone With You by Sonny Boys. We'd get them at the tuck shop at school. They'd make him mouth orange. <laughs> Next to Linfield Public School, there was a little shop called Norman's and Norman's made the school lunches on a Monday when you got tuck shop. And you could get a Sunny Boys, a Raz, or one of the cola ones. But personally, I preferred the Raz. I liked the red lip, not the orange lip. <laughs> I can taste them, those 70s holidays, the blistering concrete by the side of the pool, the outline of your flat, wet body, and the ice block that quickly becomes more ice than sweet, coconut oil, and burning sand on the feet. On the weekends... The surf club put up the flags, you're supposed to swim between the flags, and they'd set up the tent and the big high chair, the person would be up there keeping watch for sharks. And the flags were really wide apart in those days. And they used to have the radio playing the classic hits coming out of these speakers on the beach. We were sitting at the back surfing, and you'd hear all these hits like Hell and Ready, and you're basically surfing to music. That was Sally Collins, the Sunny Boys manager, and Tim the younger brother of Peter and Jeremy Oxley, who formed the band Sunny Boys. The family of five kids grew up in Kingscliff on the north coast of New South Wales, near the Queensland border. Yes, I was a waxhead. I used to like waxing, waxing my board and getting out in the surf and swimming around and just being shark bait, really. Jeremy became the National School Boys Surfing Champion in 1976. I became interested in music when I was 13 or 14 and I started playing the guitar seriously and I used to arrange different songs and chords. When we first started learning how to play guitar, we started playing late, like 13 or 14. Jeremy immediately started writing songs. It was just something he didn't even think about. So our very first band, we were doing covers of the Ormond brothers, Neil Young, plus Jeremy's originals that he'd been writing at 14. So he instinctively just started writing about his good friend's mum <laughs> and he had another song, Down in the Dumps, it was called. <laughs> so, and another one was called Last Night and it was Last Night I Got Into a Fight, I Really Got Beat Up. <laughs> that was one of the lines. So he was just started... Maybe, but not last night because we didn't go out at night. <laughs> so maybe in his dreams he'd play chords and then sing along. So he immediately started singing. So it was a totally natural thing for him, whereas I had struggled a bit, so I really had to work hard to play the guitar properly. But Jeremy was able to play lead guitar, so he was totally comfortable with it. I'm much better now at playing guitar, but... <laughs> Jeremy's got really big hands too. I was thinking, how can he get his fingers around that Stratocaster? <laughs> but he could. Yeah, I, I pick up a Stratocaster and go, oh, God. Anyway, that's why I play bass, I think. Those big fat strings, <laughs> nice and wide, only four of them. Yeah. So by the time he was 18, he'd had a lot of experience well, writing yeah, songs. Writing songs and playing. Yeah. So we had bands all the way through high school. We had four different bands. When I was in year 12, Jeremy was in year 11. Our band, we used to play the top pub in Byron Bay every Saturday night. We'd do three sets, covers and originals. We were playing with two older guys. We earned our pocket money doing that. Jeremy must have been 14, Peter's 15, 16. They had a band called Wood and Horse and they used to do gigs at 
Kingscliff Amenities Hall. And uh, my younger brother and I used to sell packets of chips and those half-sized cans of soft drink that were shopkeepers of the snacks while the band played. How many of them did you sneak? Oh, we snuck all the time, <laughs> you know. I don't think my father counted everything, but he probably did. They're probably allowed to have one can of drink and one packet of chips. <laughs> that was our payment for doing the job. So what did you used to think of Wooden Horse? I remember one song called Etta, and it was about Jeremy's best friend's auntie that died. It had a really nice melody. That was Jeremy, Peter and Tim Oxley. And Kingscliff wasn't just about the waves and the music. It was about the family business. Here's Tim. We had a four-bedroom house up McVale Avenue up the hill and Dad and Mum bought a pizza oven and put it in the rumpus room and there was just a hole in the wall as you walked up the stairs where you could buy pizzas and we were open Thursday to Sunday. And it was so successful. We, Dad bought a block of land across from the ocean down on the main street and banged up a building and a residence upstairs and a couple of shops downstairs. So it was fun living across from the beach. It was about 79, 77 when they opened up the little hole in the wall. It basically had pizza for four nights a week for, from nine years old till 16. <laughs> it was pretty good. So what was the name of it? That pizza place. <laughs> this was a taste of what was to come as Peter later went on to open a wood-fired pizza restaurant in Newtown in Sydney. Growing up on the Gold Coast, I just joined this band early in 1979 and the guitarist left. And at some point I'd, I'd run into a friend and, and she said, oh, okay, I saw this band down in Cool and Gatter that called Foreplay. Terrific. The young guy is a guitarist is really, really good. So Jeremy was now just doing high school. He took up the offer and we already had gigs so here he was god he must have just had a p driver's license and we ended up playing every weekend for 10 months sounds called chasing girls And also at rehearsal, he'd come in with a song. Sometimes the songs are completely finished. For someone who's 17, he was just several years ahead of where young guitarists and young rock musicians usually are uh, at, at that age. And we all knew that, myself and the other guys in the band. Even his guitar playing, sometimes he'd pull something out and we'd just look at each other and, where'd that come from, you know? Uh, by the end of that year, we had a whole set. We had probably 20 original songs at least a dozen of which were written by Jeremy, and a couple later recorded by the Sunny Boys. The band was called The Strand. We had this residency at a place called the Miami Hotel, which was in Miami, of course. That was Tate Brady. Jeremy's songs capture that intensity and excitement of first love, the yearning, the thrill, the tunnelling into new experiences, and the heartache too. usually kept it to boy and girl. Usually in tiresome situations where there was no negotiation between the, the parties, where there was boy interacts with girl and certain things happen. Yes, from personal experiences. Where can I see you again? Where can I see you again? Where can I see you again? When I got to see a picture of the band, I thought, oh, wow, these guys are the coolest looking band I've seen ever in Australia. So I was a big fan straight away. Lean, 
cool haircuts, tall. I love the clash. I love bands that look like the moment that they finish the gig, they would just put their guitars down, jump on their horses and ride up over the hill to the next gig. They look like a gang that kind of fought together and fought each other. Maybe They just looked like they all belonged. That was what I really was impressed by. That was musician Charles Jenkins. Here's Peter Oxley. When Jeremy got to Sydney, I was still in Shine Posters, but as soon as Jeremy got down, we were going to form a band. When we first started rehearsing, Rob Younger was singing with us. And I do remember Rob singing Alone With You in his way of singing. Rob said, oh, I should have stayed in the band, shouldn't I? But Rob left because he said, look, I don't need to be here singing with you guys. Jeremy's got a magnificent voice. He should sing. And we went, yeah, okay, see ya. <laughs> when uh, my bosses broke up, Pete said to me, I've got Bill, because Bill had been to school with Peter as well, and Jeremy wants to play. He said, do you want to come and be in the band with us? And I said, yeah, all right. <laughs> Jeremy had the songs, like Alone With You and Happy Man and What You Need. He's 18, he's not even 19 yet. And he was one of those musicians who, he's a gifted one. Most of us, mere mortals, we have to struggle for every note. We do. And it takes <laughs> a long time for us to get any good at any of it. So Jeremy turned up with the Swagger songs, and so we learned them. And then six weeks after our first rehearsal, we were on stage at the Checkers nightclub in Golden Street. That was Richard Bergman from Sunny Boys. Here's musician Keith Claringbold. I met Jeremy and um, he was just quietly spoken and um, I guess let the songs do the talking and then actually seeing them live, yeah, it was, you know, they were incredible. And the anniversary of that year is next month. It'll be 42 years. But they were very bright and confident on stage and they had their sound together. That was obvious. They were the third band from the top. That very first gig was held at Checkers. I saw the Ramones there. I saw Magazine there. And we knew about the Sunny Boys' debut. We, of course, were on the dance floor up near the front. Sydney was a thriving live music scene where punters could get to three gigs in one night. I grew up in Sydney and I used to go see lots of bands from quite a young age. I loved it. Double J had started and that really transformed the live music scene because they were playing lots of Australian stuff and not just the top 40 and they also would have their weekly gig guide and there were just lots of venues. You'd go to the San Miguel and you know that you'd see something great there and then you could later go along to Trade Union Club. So the Strawberry Hills was free. Well, the Southern Cross as it was. Yes, yeah, so you could just go for one act and then quickly dash off. But the Trade Union Club was fantastic because it went all night until about 4am. So <laughs> you always ended up there. Yeah. And how did we get around? We got around in Cheryl's. That's in 1200. And before I could drive, my sister's a little bit older than me. So we'd go together as well, particularly the San Miguel, which is the Camaray, which is no longer there. And there was a guy who used to play the spoons there and he'd play along like down the front of the stage and... The vandal kind of liked it. Why was the guy playing the spoons? Did he used to do that with every band or was this just something that he liked to do with the Sunny Boys? He did it with every band. He just loved it. He wasn't the guy with the dolls. The guy at the San Miguel that used to have dolls as well, he'd have a couple of dolls that he'd get out and make them dance to the band. That was David Collins and Cheryl Collier who ran the Sunny Boys fan club. Here's Peter Oxley. Well, Sydney was wild because there was just places to play everywhere. You could play the whole weekend and not even move out of the city. <laughs> play the Rock Garden, the Civic, um, the Stage Door Tavern, Sydney Cove Tavern, the Metropole Tavern, like 15 gigs in the city. But I was just remembering then cigarette smoking. <laughs> you could smoke in the gigs, of course. Glasses of beer and cigarettes. You'd get home after this stinky night and you just leave all your clothes outside <laughs> before you walked into the house because it was just out of control. It was amazing. Peter Oxley was so much cooler than I was ever going to be with his awesome skivvy. I often remember seeing Sunny Boys in places that were super hot, so the Manly Vale Hotel. And 
Peter Oxley would jump on stage with a turtleneck skiv type black trousers and pointy boots. It was the northern beaches, and yet he had this sort of dark inner city groovy. I think he was living in Newtown at the time. And on a really heavy, sweaty night, some groovy guy wearing a dark skivvy and saying, well, the weather's not going to get in the way of looking cool, I thought was pretty fun. It was kind of a 60s influence on him? Yeah, definitely. In the EP, Love to Rule in particular, there is a fantastic harmonising that goes on and the sound of three voices together was not really typical in late 70s, early 80s music. And then the Sunny Boys came in with this fantastic capacity to overlay layers of vocal. So it wasn't just the clothes, it was the way that they took that 60s garage sound and turned it into something that was incredibly modern. That was Andrew Bohm. Here's Jodie Adams from RAM. Going to see these guys was like being a kid again in lots of ways. There was a small group of girls there, Karen and Lorraine, and people doing 60s dances. Some of the classic go-go stuff that we would have done as kids. There was a lot of smiling, the laughing. They're hilarious guys anyway, then and now. Just funny, witty telling jokes, doing silly things, doing stuff much as I adore them. You couldn't imagine Radio Birdman or uh, Ovid Oil doing. And the humour and the fun uh, was reflected into the audience and was reflected back to them. The photograph of the Sunny Boys on the front of their first album. That is such an absolutely magnificent photo. It really echoed a 60s vibe. Uh, I think women were very attracted to Jeremy from a physical point of view. He was tall, dark and handsome and uh, Bill Bilson as well. Richard had a different vibe altogether. Richard was the one who seemed to be having fun every note he played. Richard's rhythm guitar drove so much of the Sunny Boys sound and it kind of struck me that Richard's role in the band was very similar to Malcolm Young. It's that rhythm guitar that Richard brought to it and that uh, Malcolm Young brought to ACDC that really made an enormous difference but I'm not sure that the girls were paying too much attention to that. My friend Sandra Cutts and I went to the show and Sunny Boys were playing on the 3XY stage. And then afterwards, they met all of the fans that wanted to talk to them. And that was like the first time I'd known of a band doing that, being so fan inclusive. And from that point on, we were just hooked. We saw them so many times. They've got a lot to do with me actually picking up the bass because I wanted to have something to talk to Peter Oxley about. <laughs> Other than his dance moves on stage, it was on grand final day. And we were interested mainly because we'd seen Happy Man on sounds in the morning. The music was really good. We knew the songs, but there was a warmth. They just seemed like really friendly guys. So we went backstage and there was a dinosaur that Peter had, you know, when you put the balls in the clown mouths and you win a prize. He gave me the dinosaur. And it was a treasure that I had with me for about 15 years. It was something no one else had done for me in terms of music or acknowledging me, you know, what it's like when you're a 14-year-old girl. And I don't know if you know about that, but <laughs> flat-chested and short. I felt very invisible right up until that moment. So that was really nice. And my friend Sandra and I went home all excited because we'd met a band and we were talking to everyone at school and we were surprised because most people at school didn't know about Sonny Boys. Chris Dunn and Peter Oxley, I saw Monkey Grip at the cinema with those two. So there was a lot of cross-pollination of different facets of Australian independent culture that was really blossoming at that time. And then later on when my band Have a Nice Day was on Mushroom and we went up to Sydney, all of them came along to see my band play, my interest in them was how they had devised this identity themselves, how they wrote their own songs, how it was the voice of 
the inner world of a teenager and of growing up in Australia, it was fascinating to me, the art of what they did. I was still at school and it was just trying to get into pubs to see bands underage. This particular friend was driving her mother's massive car and we were apparently going off to uh, HSE study evening at the Karingai College. <laughs> we were really going to the family unit rivals me and seeing the sunny boys or mentals or riptides. Jeremy had a very good pair of stripy pants. I've, I've always been a fan of the well-fitted 60s-style stripy pants. And look, I was a bit of a black skivvy wearer myself back in the day. And the black pointies from Chelsea Boots, I really like those as well. And they were all pretty skinny at that time too. Even Peter, who's kind of a bigger build, but he was pretty lean. And uh, yeah, they look good. It was just a lot of fun to be in amongst it all and have a really good dance. <laughs> I'm not a dancer who does a little girly, I don't want to sweat kind of dance. I like to really let it go and have the sweat flying. It's a sound of a good night, really, isn't it? You come out and you're drenched and exhausted. And then more and more Oxleys over the years kept appearing as they got old enough to move to Sydney. So that was kind of cute. And then I remember when Melanie first arrived and that word got around that, oh, there's this Oxley sister and apparently she's got a really good voice. And so I went to her first gig with a band called Sweet Nothings. And the first song, she sang like the opening line without any accompaniment and then the band came in and we all went oh wow yeah she really can see <laughs> Sally Collins became the Sunny Boys manager when she was in her 20s I loved them they were very welcoming to me it was a laugh a minute for a long time until things got too much they are larger than life and they put so much of themselves into every show. They'd be come off stage, they'd be dripping in sweat. We drove around in the five of us in a car. I had to sit in the middle of the back seat. This is what we toured in. Eventually, Bill said, we need a bigger car. And as a band, they bought an LTD. He was really into cars. So I had a, a bigger sort of hump in the middle of the back seat to sit on and as we drove around the country on tour, they worked a lot. It was high energy all the time. Pete was all the creative. He's really thought about the business and where they were going. He was very fiercely protective of his younger brother. And, and he and I ended up sharing an, uh, a flat in Darlinghurst for quite some time. When we toured to Queensland, we would always stop at Kingscliff and the Oxley boys would go home and I'd go to stay with Bill. That was my first ever encounter with a soda stream because Bill's parents had a very civilised happy hour at five o'clock every afternoon and they made their own Coke for rum and Coke. I I loved that when I was a kid. Soda stream, <laughs> not rum Soda and coke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. So Bill and and Richard were like foil to Jeremy and Peter. They kept it all sort of grounded, which it really needed to be. And you hear it in the music. Bill is a great drummer. And when you think of songs like Alone With You, the first thing that comes to your mind in a way is the opening drums. They are strong, they are distinctive, full of personality. And the Sunny Boys soon became a family affair. Here's David and Cheryl. Well, Sally, my sister, was working with Lobby Lloyd and managing them. And the band decided they'd have a fan club. We are already going to see them a lot. So we were pretty happy to do it. So we were fans. I'd been in the Mental As Anything fan club, and that was a pretty good fan club. We didn't have a lot of fans in the club, I must admit. (laughs) And we had a pretty intimate relationship with them because they would write to us. We had pseudonyms, Divide Boy and Sundial, both sort of anagrams of individuals, which was the second album title. And we would get letters from fans and spent all the time lying on my bedroom floor writing back to (laughs) people who would talk to us about what the songs meant or which band member they were in love with, how they were at some venue and Jeremy looked at them. And we'd write back and assure them that he probably had. (laughs) I've still got them because we've had a little metal box and a concertina file with all the letters (laughs) and all the newsletters. We carried that around, had it under the bed. I got in touch with Pete Oxley one day and said, look, I've got all this stuff. 
I think I'm going to put it on Facebook if that's okay with you. And he said, yeah, that's great. We're going to get back together. <laughs> so at the oh, time wow. that they did, they did the first Kids in Dust thing with Dig It Up, I set up the Sunny Boys Fan Club Facebook page and started posting the newsletters. And I just wanted to get it out somewhere and hopefully attract the fans <laughs> that we'd had initially, some of which I've found. And it just coincided with the return of the band, which meant we've gone to something like 15,000 followers rather than the 180 yeah. odd <laughs> fans that were in the fan club initially. If you watch the band performing Alone With You on Countdown, you can see the goofy joy on their faces. Jeremy looks like he's amazed there are girls in the audience and Peter laughs the whole time as some of them get up on stage next to him. But even the most avid fans miss the band on the Countdown Awards. We thought we were rebelling when, I think in 1981, the Countdown Awards were on and we were nominated for a couple of awards and they said, we want you to play alone with you. And we went, oh, no, but why can't we play our new single, You Need a Friend? And it wasn't explained to us, but it's for the year that's just passed the awards. So we said, no, nah, we're not going on then. <laughs> so <laughs> all our nominations were taken away. <laughs> Isn't that cool? So we rebelled, but for all the wrong reasons, really. Someone like Lobby Lloyd, our infamous manager, should have said, hey, Pete, the year's just gone. There it is there and you had a hit with Alone With You, and the awards are for that year, so why don't you just play Alone With You and have a beer and it'll be fun. <laughs> but <laughs> we didn't. We said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to play our new single. <laughs> so we messed that up a lot. We could have had a, had a, we could have won a Countdown Award. Yeah, Woo! single of the year. Yeah. Breakthrough album, debut album of the year. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been surprising. But, yeah, we might have. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we just watched it on TV then after that. But after the Sunny Boys' initial success, things started becoming increasingly difficult for Jeremy and the band in Sydney and on tour. In Kay Harrison's documentary, The Sunny Boy, Jeremy says that eventually he ran out of energy, ran out of innocence. Jeremy was the ultimate outsider songwriter. They always had this reputation as these kind of happy-go-lucky surfy dudes uh, or, or these young purveyors of pop hooks. But the story of the Sunny Boys to me was a story of darkness descending, really, and they wrote about that. And I think that's what I liked about them. They weren't like the Velvet Underground or The Cure or The Smiths or goth bands who self-consciously peddled darkness and outsided them and curated the myth. They just exuded it. They just were it. And those early records, starting with Alone With You and going on to Trouble In My Brain and Happy Man, all the way through their career, were all sort of pains to the duality of being an otherwise happy, driven, successful, young Aussie guy in a happy family, and then it all slowly going awry. I really related to it. They embody this kind of strange existential netherworld, which all these people hooked into, all these young surfy dudes and guys with mullets just adored and their gigs would get really violent and out of control as well. I definitely remember Jeremy getting hit with a beer can and him being really fucked off and leaving the stage. That was writer Joe Penhall. He's Richard Bergman. Sunny Boys finished up in December of 1984. We did two nights at the Graphic Arts Club in Sydney as our farewell shows. Jeremy when we first started out was perfectly fine but by the time he was four years later and he was 22 there were real signs of early adult onset schizophrenia and it happens to boys, usually young men, between the ages of 15 and 25. Yeah, right. So it was classic symptoms mm. and he was hearing voices and he was drinking, so he didn't hear the voices. So he was getting harder and harder to manage. He was getting more and more difficult to be able to do gigs with him because one show in Melbourne, we did one and a half songs and we had to walk off the stage because he was gone. He was out there. He was playing all sorts of things and he wasn't playing the set anymore. And he had his amp up really loud and he was singing nonsense. The place was full. So we had to refund everybody on the spot. It was an awful experience. We hide backstage. Mm. That was as bad as it got for us publicly, but privately it was pretty bad. He was not able to communicate. He was very rarely sober. Did you guys know what was going on? We were a bunch of clueless 20-somethings who had no freaking clue. We really thought he was just another casualty. He was just gone off the rails. There were certainly enough stories of people 
drugs and alcohol abounded everywhere, as you know, and plenty of stories about people losing it, spinning their wheels and f- the wheels falling off and people dying. There was the real dark sides of that whole era. So we decided that the only thing we could do was do that last tour, which we called the Pay the Bills Tour. Mm-hmm. So we paid off the crew, we paid off the management, the booking agency, the car hire companies, the travel agents, everybody, and walked away clean. Mm. And uh, that was, and so that was at least an honourable way to get out of the whole thing. We just let Jeremy go. Just He just wanted off. You know? I was at the Pier Hotel when he couldn't complete the show and everyone got their money back and, and I remember feeling really, really, really upset because I knew he wasn't well. It was a lot for a young person anyway to be all of a sudden thrust into the spotlight but to have the level of obsessed kind of stalking fans of which I was probably <laughs> one of them. It was really a lot for someone to deal with. It's quite exhausting being on the road like that. You need a break. The pressure of thinking that you have to write a hit or you have to have something that's number one or top ten, otherwise the record company might keep you. It can foster a condition or a context where a mental illness gets exacerbated. He started the gig, he came out, there were a couple of songs in, and then he was getting lost in the songs and getting a bit belligerent with the crowd and disengaging from the songs. Like, he was not really there. Mm. But Peter took him off stage at the Pier Hotel and they all left them. Peter came back on and it looked to me like he'd been crying, which was mm. pressing. And sorry. It's okay. And he just said, yeah, sorry about this. We can't continue the show. You can get your money back at the door. Then he went. And I was with my boyfriend at the time. In the car, I was very quiet because it was quite traumatic to see. And being empathic, I just was concerned for how they were and what was happening with them. When he was well one year's eve, he told me that I was a really curious mix of intelligence and innocence. I thought that was a very beautiful thing to say. And I've kept that. Yeah, he's a precious person. We went from touring with a sound guy and a fallback guy to having five crew and a 12-ton truck and a huge light show and gets hyper, 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 hyper. And then the cracks start to form and the expectations with recording, you go very quickly from a cottage industry to an industry. And it was really difficult, but it was all because the popularity grew just so quickly. So there was the good and the bad attention and things started to combust. It really got too much for me. It was really hard because I dearly love these people. All I wanted to do was help them put on a good show and look after them, and I couldn't do that. It took me a long time to actually get to that point because I didn't want to let them down. Nobody could help what was happening with Jeremy. None of his peers, none of us could. And we didn't understand it. Offering to stop live work and to have more breaks, that didn't make a difference either because then he's left to his own devices. The same, and I think I might have talked about Dave McClendon. I saw myself as a caretaker, and in a way, you're shielding and protecting people from the outside world. But if you're not there, then who is there to watch? Who is there to be that guard or to ring the right people or to know the right thing to do? There's nobody. So eventually, it becomes a matter of self preservation. That was Fiona Lee Maynard and Sally Collins. Joe Penhall. Surrey Hills at the end of the 80s, this Sunny Boys legacy had gone and Jeremy had this new version of the Sunny Boys that I thought were good and he had some great songs but people really looked down their nose at them, you know. I became friends with him then and I saw the way that people treated him and it was tragic. It was really upsetting. It had a profound effect on me that lasted kind of all my life. It's one of the reasons why I started writing really. That sense of psychological complexity and psychological turmoil and chaos that he articulated so well. No one else was articulating, no one really before or since. He was an incredibly gifted musician. He could play guitar 
like Hendrix and he could sing like Lennon. He could sing like Robert Plant. I remember my band was rehearsing once. He kind of ripped through a medley of songs like Twist and Shout and we couldn't keep up. He was incredible. And then a really weird thing happened. I was running this pizza bar in South London and I went for a holiday in Portugal and I was walking down a hill and walking up the hill the other way was Pete Oxley. And I said, how's Jeremy? What's happened? And he told me the whole story about how he went all the way down and ended up on the streets and and then got it together again. And he said he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia and it haunted me so much that he was so misunderstood that all these bogans and all these music snobs had victimised him for so long. He was struggling with a serious condition. And this was the tail end of the 80s and Australia and the world were just not understanding these things. They weren't understanding neurodiversity or differentness and particularly in the Australian rock scene, it was really fucking monocultural. It's the last place you were going to find any empathy. So I wrote this play that was kind of about me, but it was also a little bit inspired by what Peter told me. And that was a hit at the Royal Court, and it was a film with Daniel Craig, and I wrote Mindhunter, and although it's a billion miles away, it sort of became the thing that I found a way to write about. I still listen to the Sunny Boys all the time, and I was listening to them all the time then when I wrote those things. It was always the Sunny Boys that... Were my inspiration. In the Sunny Boy doco, Jeremy describes his wild days. I was like a wasp after its nest has been disturbed. I was just off my head. And his memories of Sydney are impressionistic. I thought it was a, a bit of a shithole, really. I didn't like Sydney much. And I only went there to go to art school, just practising guitar. And I bought a 100-watt amplifier from Narrabri, went out the train. Yeah, we saw the Ramones and we saw them at the Capitol Theatre. I personally don't have much to say about the whole event. I found it tedious and tedious. Yeah, just the whole aspect of competing with other people for band space and band time and band songs. Anyone with lived experience of mental illness knows it's a deeply personal path to walk. Some want the labels, some don't. Some feel the stigma deeply, some don't. Some find the right medication, some don't. But in my own life, I've found that this different way of looking at the world, this drive, or even this fragility, can be the very thing that sprouts your creative vision, that keeps you alive. In the doco, Jeremy says that he feels like his music was stolen from him. But he also says, I put all my battles on canvas, and it helped to keep me sane. Yeah, I'm a painter, a painter, basically, I'm not at work, I do other things and I've got canvases and I prick up my ears to other happenings. One of the joys for fans has been seeing Sunny Boys come back together in the past decade. Many had given up hope. As I'm writing this, I'm getting ready to jump on a plane to see them play in Sydney after a COVID cancellation. Here's Stuart Coop and Steve Coates. It's a conversation that comes up a lot these days and I actually asked Richard Bergman the other night. We, who were in our early to mid-twenties in the 1980s and probably people that were in their early to mid-twenties when Beatlemania hit and maybe people who were in their early to mid-twenties when hip-hop hit ask themselves the same question. And that question is simply, was it so fucking great or are we mythologising a time and place and the fact that 30 or 40 years have gone by and we were in the, the zenith of our youth and our experience, was it that great or do we just want to remember it was that great? And Richard Bergman answered the question by looking me in the eye and saying, it was that great. It was headlined by the Hoodoo Gurus doing a track-by-track run-through of their first record. And on the bill in the late afternoon in the Enmore Theatre was this band called Kids in Dust. It was a bit of an open secret on the day that Kids in Dust was going to be the Sunny Boys playing their first gig in many years. And the atmosphere in the Enmore leading up to their set was absolutely charged. When the band came out, there was this really intense feeling of goodwill and love towards them. They were a bit nervous, but they 
put on a killer set and I'll never forget that feeling of support and pure joy that filled that place during that set. Yes, I like being recognised for Alone With You. They love Alone With You and I go, yep, that's my little battler song. When I hear it, I get a real warm resonance that comes up from inside and a big smile comes on my face. And then I get flashes of impressions from the past, from teenage girlfriends and the inside of all these different band venues that used to exist. I get flashes of smells from drinks and sweat from the inside of all those walls. And I see Sally taking me backstage at the ballroom when I was a little bit too drunk to be watching their whole set and letting me vomit into the backstage sink. I get flashes of falling asleep to the cassette, to the Blue Album that I had when I guess I was 15. I have distinct memories of teenage bedroom that I was in and the radio that it was blasting out of, images of them being on Countdown, playing that song. It's not a romantic song as far as I can make out. And so do you want to take me back to your teenage bedroom? <laughs> there was a bunk bed I shared with my older brother, Paul, and there was a, lots of bookshelves and the cassette radio that we would record. We had an above-ground pool and my father had built a deck so he could climb up to and bomb your way in. And I used to give these imaginary concerts on that pool deck where I used some kind of cleaning apparatus as the microphone (laughs) and make out that I was on countdown. That part of my career was curtailed when my brother must have seen me. I don't know how long he was watching my imaginary concert for, but he eventually called out, dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the end of that. Oh, you're sprung. <laughs> what a review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember always being struck by the way Jeremy Oxley sang the word hard. I know it's hard. How he gives that word three notes. In retrospect, he gives that word such meaning by doing it like that. It just made that line so sad. I know it's hard when you've tried, when the conversation's Terror, you have what's what what's sung there? Terror, you have tied. Oh, but this is the other thing that I always liked. There's one line that he doesn't rhyme when he sings, "Watching you walk." Oh yeah, when he sings, "Watching you walk," I know you're really attractive. Well, oh, that's <laughs> that's the best line in the song, I reckon. See, here we go. So, why is that the case? Is it because all the whole mm. way through he's been rhyming? Mm. The way that he sings, "I'm alone with you." The beauty of the song is that it enables listeners to bring their own version to it. So, my version of it, for better or for worse, is the anxiety of it. Like, is he with this person that he really wants it to work? but he's as nervous as all get out because it's finally happening or something. The lines that I can't always take it, I don't even know what they mean. If he wanted it to be romantic, he could have done it like that. But there's this kind of unsuredness, awkwardness that's attached to the whole thing. That wasn't very clear what I said then, but that was me being awkward. And so what happens is that the listener then supplies their own version of the events. We all see the person that to us is very attractive Mm. walking. Yeah. And we all think of being alone with them tonight. That was Fiona Lee Maynard and Charles Jenkins. Here's Jodie Adams and Joe Penhall. It conjures up a relationship that I was slowly getting into at the time with someone who was majorly a part of that scene. The maturity and bravery, especially in an Australian male subculture, of admitting your insecurity was still a pretty blokey scene. And for someone so young, it was a romantic song, but also a realistically honest song about being involved in a relationship. 
these guys are great fun and great energy and really clever and really talented. But bang, hearing that, I went, wow. There's elements of fear. There's elements of edge. There's elements of uncertainty as well as daring to hope about love. This mightn't be one-off. It's all in there. I'd just fallen in love with someone after pushing people away all my life. When you have too many people die on you, then that's what you do. If you let anyone get too close, you then get frightened because you associate love with loss. It was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. So I certainly related to a lot of the lyrics of that song. What he articulated was that sense of nobody understanding what you were saying, of not being able to communicate and people staring at you or taking the piss out of you, which tended to happen if you were from anywhere else in the 70s. And that sense that there was probably one person that understood you, that you could be with a girl or your best mate. It, it articulates what it's like to not be able to talk to people, to be struck with terror by social encounters, to need alcohol and stimulants to free you, and the sense that you're an outsider looking in Watching you touch, watching you walk, you know you're really attractive. It's the kind of shy cadence that an outsider says. That's not a, an Aussie chat-up line from that era. That's not what a surfy dude with a Chico roll would say. Every single one of their songs I took incredibly seriously. I met this girl who also liked the beach and also liked the Sunny Boys and we fell madly in love. It was the first ever love affair and then inevitably that relationship broke up and I was in terrible turmoil and my band broke up and I went to Sydney to try and start again and that didn't go very well. And then that girlfriend of mine died suddenly in a crash. It was devastating and a few nights later, a friend of mine turned up on the doorstep drunk with Jeremy Oxley and I'd been sitting there listening to all these Sunny Boys songs like Alone With You Again, licking my wounds, trying to find some kind of solace in my turmoil and suddenly he appeared on the doorstep. So I heard it last Friday. You sort of forget about it because it's not something that I put on at home. But when you hear the song out of context, when all of a sudden it turns up and you go, oh, alone with you, I'll have a listen. And yeah, it's a bloody great song. Jeremy got so sick of playing alone with you <laughs> that he was going, I'm not playing alone with you tonight. So okay, okay. And we try and leave it out. When people were yelling, we love playing it now. And the audiences love it. They sing their hearts out. So how does listening to music from the time, like from the 80s, evoke an era for you? You remember what you were doing. You remember the feeling of that time. Because we were young, so you remember crazy things that you did and you go, hmm, yeah, maybe I sh shouldn't have done that. But then it's too late now because you did. <laughs> but it's with all music. It'll take you back to a certain time in a feeling or something that's happened to you in, in a personal relationship. Jeremy wrote the song, you see, so it was his, his take and his view on that relationship that he had at the time. And it's really quite special. I think it's romantic. And a young man's view on life, it's quite joyous, really. And in fact, it is alone with her at the night, but we get everyone in the crowd to sing along, and, which means no one's alone with anybody when there's 2,000 people in the room and everyone's singing, I'm alone with you. It's great. It's really quite fun. I don't think there's an edge to it. Because I started to wonder whether the point of view of it is that he's not really with her, you know, that he's thinking that he's alone mm. with her, but he's actually alone, you know, and she's kind of, <laughs> that's what, how I interpret yep. it now. Like he's alone. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, He's alone at home mm -hmm. and he's wishing, he's desiring mm -hmm. her, but she's not actually mm -hmm. there and she might not mm -hmm. ever be. A lot of a young man's mind is associated with that sort of imagery. You're always looking around and always looking about for what life might have to offer and thinking to yourself, imagining what it might be like. It's very, very much a part of it, yeah. Oh, it's in a bit of a whirlpool, really. It was a pretty rock-heavy pop song that I wrote at the time in 1980. I just wrote it and it just wrote itself, really. It just followed on from all the chords and the chord progressions. They just fell into place. 
No, I don't think back on those days. I just sing along with it. I, I wanted it to be written about my first girlfriend. It's just a song about wanting to live and love. Connie's leaving, so Benny follows her out. They both lug their guitars down the stairs and start to walk. It's too risky, it guys. Things always go missing in the night. Along the wall, someone has spray-painted, Nick Cave, oh God, please let me die beneath your fists. Where do you live, she asks. Pasco Vale. You can crash at my place, I'm just around the corner. He thinks about his mum waiting up for the sounds of him. I'll hitch a lift. He says it like it's not the first time. I'll wait while you get a ride. If you stand on the corner looking like that, they'll think you're for rent. Benny puts his shirt back on and buttons up his jacket. He loves the way she talks, fast and funny. We can lock away bad memories together. Close the door to the past forever Watching you touch We're past this much I'm alone with you tonight too cold to stand still and they end up starting to walk and then they just keep walking until their feet hurt and their arms ache. Bonnie lights her last cigarette and throws the packet away. There are so many questions he wants to ask her. Where is her family? Why did she leave Tasmania? How did she meet Guy? But he doesn't feel like he has the right. His first girlfriend told him he was up himself because he never asked her any questions. But it isn't like that. He doesn't know how to impose on people. Connie sits on the ground and pulls him down. We've still got ages to go, Benny says. What about if we try a shortcut? The fence has razor wire along the top. She gives him a boost, kind of. As he tries to balance, the inside leg of his pants gets caught and he feels it tear. Not just through the suit, but into the hard flesh of his inner thigh. I'm coming back down, we'll never get over. You're bleeding. She touches the rip, grey skin and reaches into a pocket of her canvas bag. She places the pad over his wound and presses. If you keep it there, it should stop the flow. He holds it down without looking. He's seen them in the bathroom cabinet. He feels like he's stealing some secret part of her. She tilts her head to the side and tries not to laugh. remember what I say I can always take it having to pay watching you walk you know you're really attractive I'm alone with you got any sisters? Just Guy. Why don't we keep walking until we find an overpass, she says. He puts his head between his legs. It'll be hours until they get home. Is it the blood? Are you hurting? He wants to cry and shakes his head. It's his father's suit. The only one. She takes his hand and pulls him along as they take turns singing, yelling the lyrics into the night making dogs bark along the streets. He lies down on the footpath and she drags him up again. Whose dumb idea was this? She asks. I know it's hard when you have tried When 
Sweat has dried cold on his back. The wind hits it and stings. They dangle their legs between the overpass bars and hang their boots over. The traffic is starting to build to peak hour, lights on in the morning fog. They've been walking all night. He moves so his hand is resting on the outer side of his thigh and waits to see if she'll do the same. He doesn't. He pulls him around so he is sitting with his back against the bars the cold in his bones. She puts her finger in the tear in his pants. I can't believe it's still there, she says. It's stuck to my leg. I'm alone with you the pad off, a smear of bright red blood and laughs as she chucks it over the railing and onto the cars below. She sits down with one leg either side of him wrapping him in the hug of her mohair coat. He thinks about which way his mum drives to work. It's new, the warmth of Connie, the chemical smell, dog hair, tobacco, wet wool. Most of all the way her legs control his movement, position him so she gets what she wants. You know, it takes the same amount of energy to orgasm as it takes to climb a flight of stairs, she says. He struggles to keep up with her. She lies him down on the concrete and then rolls so he's on top. She shows him how to press down and move and the cars below honk, but he doesn't hear them. Only the sound of clothes rubbing against skin. She goes quiet and moves quicker and her forehead is all frown. At the end, she looks up and sighs, but her heart goes hard. He leans his ear on her heart as he looks out into the oncoming traffic. the Alone With You chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which was published by Transit Lounge and shortlisted for the 2021 SPN Book of the Year Award and the Penguin Literary Prize. The book is structured as a mixtape of late 70s and 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an e-book too. The audio book is coming soon. Our version of Alone With You features the mesmerising Trish Young from The Clouds on vocals and was produced by Richard Andrew at Pharmacy Studios. For the original version of the song, search out Sunny Boys. For this episode, a huge thanks to Mary Griffiths Oxley, who helped interview Jeremy, and Tate Brady, who provided the wonderful songs from The Strand's last gig at the Miami Hotel, where Tate is on vocals and Jeremy is on guitar and backing vocals. Jeremy and Tate both wrote the two songs, Chasing Girls and When Can I See You Again. Coming up in the next episode, we head to Melbourne, to a voice left from drinking, to a band that moved from alternative scene to pop sensation, and the song Barbados by Models. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Krauth, with sound design and mixing by AJ Bradford and Jed Palmer. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. 
thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with research. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney with vocals by La Trouble, aka Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.